So, can you hear me? Tonight I would like to talk about how to tame an elephant or about the hindrances. It's not so sexy, I know the title. So, I would like to begin with a quotation from the Buddha. Luminous monks is the mind and it is defiled by incoming defilements. The uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person doesn't discern as it actually is present, which is why I tell you that for the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person there is no development of the mind. Luminous monks or practitioners is the mind and it is freed from incoming defilements. The well-instructed disciple of the Noble Ones discerns that as it actually is present, which is why I tell you that for the well-instructed disciple of the Noble Ones there is development of the mind. Much could be said about these lines. They describe the mind as being luminous and radiant by nature and how this mind is being clouded by defilements that come in. Whoever understands this, the Buddha said, who knows this, for him or for her, it is possible to develop the mind, to transform it and ultimately to experience the liberation of the mind. Tonight I would like to talk about such impurities or defilements that we can encounter in our meditation, but that also affect our mind so often in our everyday life, the so-called hindrances. They create a lot of tension, stress and confusion and prevent true happiness and peace. That is why they are called hindrances. And they are forces which make it really difficult for the mind to calm down, to gather and to develop. Especially in the first few days of a retreat, these hindrances can be quite prominent and challenging. And instead of the stillness and the inner peace that we may be hoped for, we may experience endless chatter or we might feel tense, or we might feel out of balance, or tired. Sometimes we may find ourselves losing ourselves in endless fantasies, or we are caught in a lot of aversion and judgment, and so on and on. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So, as you, have may, as you may have noticed, it's not always so pleasant or easy to meditate, to really look into our own minds and to witness all those motions that we have to go through. So it's not just good news what we see in meditation. And yet, without realizing it, within all this, in the midst of all this inner chaos, there is so much learning happening. As we turn towards our minds over hours, over days, we gradually become more conscious and familiar with the workings of the mind. Because here we simply have less distractions, no work to do, 
no internet, no books, no smartphone. So we cannot help but see what is going on in our own minds. We learn how to deliberately turn towards our own minds. And then we can watch what is going on. And often, unless the mind is really well trained, we just become aware of how little control we have. Somehow the mind just does what it wants. And actually it is a good sign if we start to notice that, if we start to notice the hindrances, because that means we are actually trying to cultivate. We are actually trying to come out of this very impulsive way of living. In the tradition, the untrained mind is compared to a wild elephant, an animal that is very impulsive and reactive and that can be quite dangerous at times. For years, we have allowed this elephant to run around freely. We have allowed it to follow on many impulses and maybe also to create a lot of suffering in our lives. And now if we practice the Dharma, then we learn how to tame this elephant. We learn how to work with it so that over the time this elephant will develop maybe some trust and become more skilled. So we begin by developing mindfulness, which is the ability to really connect to the present moment experience. We become aware of our experiences. So we become more familiar with what is going on. And of course, what we meet is not always pleasant, is not always nice. It's just a normal part of meditation that we go through the whole range of possible experiences from very nice, very pleasant, even blissful experiences to very unpleasant, challenging mind states. And rather than judging ourselves, we have heard that many times already, rather than judging ourselves when we experience difficult mind states, it is so important that we learn to acknowledge them, to recognize them. And this takes a lot of honesty, actually, to have this willingness to acknowledge what is going on. Maybe it's difficult for us because we have an image that we want to be a good meditator. We maybe have been practicing for a while already, and then it can be hard not to just ignore, uh, you know, these really challenging mind states or what we consider to maybe be the wrong experience. Maybe also we are so much under the influence of a hindrance that we simply allow it to dominate our minds. Sometimes it's just so tempting to let a certain mind stream, you know, a thought stream go on. And we are not really interested in stopping this thought stream. And a third possibility why it can be difficult to really see difficult mind states is that we have become so used to them. They are just normal to us. It's just like furniture that we don't notice anymore in, you know, in our inner space. So it is really part of our practice that we acknowledge difficult mind states without denying or excluding or preferencing any of them. And 
over time we might start to understand that it's really much more helpful to recognize all of them rather than to try to just push them aside. Sayada Utejaniya says, we meditate because we want to understand defilements. We want to be aware of the defilements that arise as Dhamma nature. What is wholesome is Dhamma nature and what is unwholesome is also Dhamma nature. This is basic. Our goal in practice is not to manipulate our experience so that it somehow fits our expectations, but really to open to the experience as it is in this moment so that we can learn from it. And through this deeply understanding and seeing the experience, wisdom arises. So we want to carefully ex examine our experiences so that we can start to overcome wrong or fixed views that we might have. And that's why we talk about these five hindrances, because if we know them, it is easier for the mind to recognize them when they arrive and to be on our guard so that we don't fall into them, that we don't just buy into them. That is really the problem with hindrances, that they can trap us very much without us noticing it, because as Fred sometimes says, you know, they don't carry a sign that says, caution, I'm a hindrance. We have to recognize them. So these five hindrances are sensuous desire or greed, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety or worry, and the fifth one is skeptical doubt. So the first one, sensual desire or greed. This really refers to this desire for something that promises pleasure or enjoyment and fun to us. And actually desire in itself need not be problematic. For instance, the desire for spiritual growth and liberation is considered to be very wholesome. But when we are talking about the hindrances, then we are talking about sensual desires, sensual pleasures, you know, this desire for some physical or emotional sensation. And this desire thirsts for some fulfillment. And it's interesting that in our <laughs> consumerist culture, this desire is not necessarily seen as bad or problematic. On the contrary, it is a central topic of many novels and films. Then we see those heroes, you know, and the protagonists of these films, uh, how they long for each other, and then they go through all kinds of complications until they finally um, come together. And that can be very moving for us to witness this. Or, you know, recently I've noticed all those food pictures that are being posted in the internet and all the discussions around food and how it looks and how it has to be cooked. And so it, there is a whole cult around sense pleasures. And then desire is somehow presented as something very um, positive, as a sign of vitality even. However, 
what is being overlooked in this context is how much desire can ensnare us and capture us. Whenever there is a desire for something, whether it is a desire for a, for a cappuccino, for another person, for some nice vacation, this desire takes so much of our time. Have you noticed? It takes so much of our own time, of our energy. It takes a lot of inner space and it makes everything else look boring or unimportant. Everything that doesn't somehow um, relate to our object. So our gaze really narrows onto this object, what we long for. And when the desire is strong, we might even act like addicts at time, obsessing about what we want and maybe doing or saying things that are not really skillful. When there is desire in the mind, at the same time accompanying it, it's like the shadow, um, is always a feeling of inadequacy. I am not enough. Life is not enough. This moment is not enough. It's actually a state of dissatisfaction. And so the mind projects dissatisfaction onto an object or an event in the future and imagines how wonderful and fulfilling this experience is going to be. And in meditation, we might spend our time being lost in fantasies and daydreams where we imagine the fulfillment of our desire in the most beautiful colors. Maybe just even lunch, you know, already the mind <laughs> going forward to lunch or cup of tea or what we are going to do when we get home or so. However, what we don't see is that usually the expected satisfaction, what we project, what will happen, is much greater than the actual satisfaction that we then get when the day arrives. Maybe you have had these experiences. Maybe you, you know these kind of experiences where we long for certain things to happen, certain events, maybe the graduation, maybe moving to a new apartment, a new partner, a new pair of shoes or whatever. And so often things turn out a little bit different than we had expected and maybe not so perfect as we had expected. So that's one blindness the difference between the expected satisfaction and the true satisfaction that we can get. And the second blindness is that we don't notice how unpleasant desire is in itself. This state of desiring and longing, it's actually very unpleasant. That is something that we normally don't notice because we are so focused on the object. So if we can bring awareness to the felt experience of desire in this moment, we will maybe notice a lot of tension in our body-mind system. Um, so desire is really the opposite of contentment, of this very peaceful state when the mind is just happy and okay with how things are. Sometimes desire can be very strong and obvious, and sometimes it's very hard to notice, very subtle. Sometimes we can even feel the pull of something, and then, you know, 
the whole body almost leaning towards this object. Sometimes maybe there is a contraction that we can become aware of or we notice obsessive thoughts around this desired object. We can also have desire with respect to certain meditation experiences, hoping or waiting for some experience to happen, waiting for more concentration to come, sometimes waiting for liberating insights. Sometimes we might very subtly try to manipulate our experience so that it would be a little bit different from what it is right now. Sometimes it's just because it is so unpleasant, we wait for the experience to end. There is desire that this meditation period will end finally. Whatever the desire, whatever the wanting is about, it's always the case that the mind is seeking satisfaction outside, in the circumstances. So we are focusing outwardly, hoping that we will find this fulfillment there, and we don't notice how ensnared we are, how trapped. The Buddha gave very interesting similes for those five hindrances, and he compared the mind in its natural state to clear, pure water. But this water can be clouded and muddied by circumstances. So in the case of sensuous desire, the mind is being compared to water which has been colored by the addition of dyes. Through this coloring, the water is no longer clear and everything that we look at is also colored. We are looking at the world through the lenses of desire. And when we see our desired object, this object will seem so much more attractive, so much more beautiful, so much more promising than when we are in a different mind state. And it's interesting how such a perception can change if we wait for a while. Sometimes, in retrospect, I have found myself really wondering what the heck was going on with me at that time. Why did I want, you know, this person, this situation, this whatever, so badly? What was about it? It was just my perception was so different than a little bit later. So, what do we do? If we don't want to fall prey, to this desire, it's really essential that we recognize when it's there. That is, we really have to turn the attention away from the object towards the mind. That is really <laughs> difficult. We have to become aware of the mind state rather of the object. So that is what we are training to really recognize when there is desire in our mind, to notice it and to just feel it instead of either following it or suppressing it. That is, we can choose not simply to fall into the reactivity of grasping, of clinging, but to stay mindful of the experience of desire itself. And
And what is usually helpful rather than attending to all the thoughts around a desire is if we can really bring the attention and anchor the attention the attention in our body to really be aware of this energy really it's a kind of energy that we can learn to notice and then at times we might notice that a desire that we have not simply given in can decrease and disappear without leaving any trace it simply dissolves it disappears even if just temporary and this is actually an important insight to realize that desires can completely disappear by themselves if we do not feed them. And this is a lot of inner freedom that is opening there when we learn to let a desire just be and not to follow what it tells us. Then the second obstruction or hindrance is ill will or aversion. Aversion has the quality that it wants to push an object away. The Pali word for aversion, patiga, literally means to strike against something. We experience aversion in all kinds of variations, strongly as hate, anger or even rage, as ill will, hostility, as annoyance or fear, or also as a sense of irritation or crabbiness or pessimism or sometimes even just a, a, a resistance, you know, towards what is happening. Aversion sees what is not good about an object, what is bad, what is inadequate. And it has this belief that it would be better for me if this particular object or situation weren't here. So it's really the opposite of desire. Perhaps we are experiencing something that is unpleasant. Someone irritates us by his or her behavior. The weather is too cold or too hot. The back hurts. The mind is too restless or anything really. And immediately the mind can go into this complaining mode. And sometimes it can also be a little bit funny just to see the self-centeredness in this aversion. Once at IMS on a cold winter morning, I was doing walking meditation outside in the snow and the sun was just rising, but it was still hidden behind the trees. And in the mind, the thought went through, they really should cut down these trees so that there would be some sunshine here. <laughs> a very self-centered view, just based on my aversion. <laughs> Perhaps we notice in meditation how our thoughts are circling about something, around something that we feel averse in towards. Perhaps we are telling off the person who is annoying us, or we are figuring out some strategies, what we could do to solve this situation. Oh, people don't seem to know how to behave on retreats. I think I really have to write a note to the teachers. They should make an announcement around that, you know. So it's really important that we notice, okay, that's about aversion. How does it feel in the body? Do I notice the pressure, the tension that goes with it? As we have seen, as I've mentioned already, aversion can also sometimes trigger desire as the mind is trying to get away from the unpleasantness by looking for something that is more 
promising. So sometimes we might experience difficult emotions and it can easily happen that then the mind goes off and, you know, starts to dream or fantasize about something that is more pleasant. Once after the breakup of a relationship, I was really struck by this tendency how my mind would go into endless pleasant fantasies simply because it didn't want to feel the pain and the grief. It was just a way that mind and heart were trying to cope with the situation. So it's really important that we don't judge all those movements of the mind, but that we just recognize, okay, there is desire or there is aversion, whatever, and maybe there is some underlying pain that also needs to be seen and needs to be felt. And we can see in this, you know, how both aversion and desire are really just two sides of the same coin. Sometimes aversion can also manifest as pretty harsh self-criticism, this tendency to evaluate and judge ourselves. For example, just be aware if you notice thoughts like, I'm not good at meditating or I'm not trying hard enough, I really ought to do this better. In meditation, we might also recognize a tendency to avoid certain experiences. We try somehow not to feel them, not to, f you know, be too close to them, to keep them at a distance. Whatever, it all belongs into this category of aversion and ill will. The Buddha compared aversion and ill will to water that is boiling. You might know this state when the mind is seething and we lose the coolness of a clear mind. It's easy to recognize aversion as an unpleasant and unwholesome mind state because it is really a rather rough and coarse and harsh energy. And this is very different from desire, which might at first glance not seem too unwholesome and unpleasant. So the good thing about aversion is that the mind is quite motivated to overcome and to transform it because it is so clearly unpleasant and unwholesome. Again, when we become aware of aversion in the mind, the most important thing is to acknowledge it and not to identify with it. So rather than giving myself a bad time, see, you did it again, I can simply acknowledge Oh, right, this is aversion. It's just a mind state. It's not who I am. It's not something that I need to define myself through it. It's just a mind state. And this clear perception is actually the first step towards liberation. If we can recognize aversion without having to follow the impulses without having to reacting to it and putting another layer of suffering on top of it, then it can just dissolve on its own accord. So our responsibility is not that we shouldn't feel aversion. Our responsibility lies in how are we going to meet it? How are we responding to it when it arises in our mind? to really come from a place that is wise and compassionate rather than judging.
Then we come to the third hindrance, which actually comprises two factors, sloth and torpor, Faulheit und Trägheit. Sloth and torpor were compared by the Buddha with water that is completely filled with algae. Surely you have seen such small, still ponds where the water is really stagnant and stale and, uh, you know, all these green algae. Have you seen them? And the hindrance of sloth and torpor can be compared to this. Actually, these are two different mental factors. However, they always go together in our experience. So sloth refers to a mind state of laziness or sluggishness. The mind simply lacks the energy, the strength and the drive. It just prefers to hang around and it's unable to pull itself together. Such a powerless and lazy mind just lacks the interest in practice and prefers just to chill and to be at ease. Oh, I will just practice meditation while lying in the sun. Didn't they say that one can practice mindfulness in any posture? Mm. We might fool ourselves and don't want to acknowledge that we are just too lazy to practice. Sloth also lacks motivation and energy to tackle challenges and to get things done. So when there is sloth in the mind, it is really difficult to apply oneself to the practice wholeheartedly. Torpor, on the other hand, the other quality, is more like a heavy blanket that covers everything. It's something that brings such a sense of heaviness and inertness. The mind feels dull, insensitive and very immobile. Under the influence of torpor, the mind is very lethargic and foggy and easily falls into a doze or a sleep, just nodding off, you know, during meditation. And of course, we shouldn't, um, you know, mix it up with true tiredness. Sometimes in our practice, we might be really tired and it could be a genuine tiredness, of course especially in the first few days of a retreat, many practitioners may feel tired because they are overworked or because of a sleep deficit. So that's really very normal and understandable. And if this is the case for you, it is really good for yourself if you just give the time to yourself to come back to balance, have enough rest. But then if after several days of enough rest, you still nod off in every meditation, you might consider that this could possibly be the hindrance of torpor. <laughs> Actually, a mind that is under the influence of sloth and torpor is very comparable to the animal of a sloth. Faultier, which is said to be the slowest mammal in the world, albeit a very sweet one. Its whole lifestyle is geared towards minimizing the use of energy <laughs> and its <laughs> digestion supposedly is the slowest among all mammals. <laughs> so uh, I learned from a YouTube video that it can take two weeks for a sloth to digest one single meal. <laughs> 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 
And this, uh, that sloth spent most of their time resting. <laughs> so no wonder that a mind which is under the influence of sloth and torpor shows little activity. There is just not much liveliness and energy in such a being. There is not much going on. <laughs> A more subtle form of sloth and torpor can show itself as a tendency to avoid unpleasant experiences. You know, when we shrink back from actually meeting what is happening, and we just prefer to numb out a little bit. In meditation, we might simply sit and wait until the time is over. So not really meditating, just, you know, when is it over? So our mo moment Mind is not very mobile and not awake in this state, but just slow and foggy. We should really recognize when this is the case for us, recognize these states as an obstruction, as a hindrance, and be mindful of them. So really bringing in this quality of mindful investigation into it. Even if the mind is lazy and inert, it is possible to raise some interest and to make possibly the, this experience the object of our interest and mindfulness. And this in itself can bring some energy into the system. And if that's not enough, maybe it's a good time to consider opening the eyes or standing up. Then we have the quasi-opposite of sloth and torpor, which is a hindrance of restlessness and anxiety or worry. Here too we have m two mental factors, but they do not have to occur together always. Sometimes it's just one of them. The simile for restlessness and worry is water that is constantly being whipped up by the wind, so there are many ripples and waves on the surface. Restlessness is a state of agitation, excitement or distraction. Both the mind and the body can be affected by restlessness and it is actually quite unpleasant to bear. Here we have too much inner movement which makes it difficult for us possibly to remain quiet, even just physically, or to sustain our awareness. The mind finds it hard to actually land on something, to arrive properly. We might notice constant distraction or flashing thoughts and images passing through. And because we are not really there, because we are pulled in all directions, the mind is unable to really immerse itself in the experience and to really feel and sen sense. It somehow remains on the surface of the experience. Sometimes it's also compared or it's said that the mind under this influence of restlessness somehow hovers in a small distance above the objects. So the mind cannot really land and touch the experience. We think too much and don't perceive enough. And the second mental factor in this pair is worry or anxiety. Sometimes we might have pangs of conscience 
about some past actions. We might feel guilt or shame that can prevent us from being present. Sometimes also there might be fears or hopes about the future. So we are constantly thinking about what might happen or not happen. Sometimes too, we are very concerned about how we are being perceived by other people, how they, what they think about us, like you know, in the meditation hall when we have to sneeze or cough or swallow, and then we can start to notice a lot of tension building up in us. Oh no, what are the others going to think of me? They think I'm a lousy meditator and so on. That's worry or anxiety. It's clear that restlessness and worry also reflect our life circumstances. If our normal life is very hectic, if we are just used to rushing through life, then we shouldn't be too surprised if the mind is restless when we try to sit down and meditate. Or if we have acted in unskillful ways, then the worries are just a karmic fruit of what we have done and we just have to face it. But it might also be that we are taking the opinions and thoughts of other people far too seriously and that we just might need to learn not to care so much about other people's views and opinions. Anyway, when we feel restlessness and or anxiety in the meditation, it is really not helpful to try to suppress them. It's actually hopeless. It's much more helpful if we can just acknowledge, again, just acknowledge this mind state, pay attention to how it feels in the body, and maybe just allow it to, f to f move through the body. Just give it enough space so the energy can move in your body. Just pay attention to the physical sensations. Sometimes it can also help to deliberately bring in a bit more precision and really try to become a bit more interested in details of noticing, you know, whatever sensations in your hands or the breath. And actually, to the extent that we can relax and trust the process, over time the body and mind will naturally settle. Then we have the fifth hindrance, which is skeptical doubt. Uh, the Buddha compared doubt to water, which has become cloudy with mud and dirt. Skeptical doubt shows up in such thoughts as, I'm not made for meditation, that is too difficult for me, or what's the point of sitting around for hours and feeling my breath? I think I'd should have rather gone to this other seminar, whatever it was, quantum healing or shiatsu or whatever. So doubt is not an easy mind state and it is really crucial that we recognize it because it has the potential to discourage us and to dissuade us completely from the practice. And that is the reason why doubt is actually considered to be the most dangerous of the five obstacles. Skeptical doubt is a state of inner uncertainty and indecision. The mind is somehow paralyzed, not knowing what it wants, 
it is incapable and also reluctant to come to an inner clarity and to a decision, but it just tends to run in endless circles. But just again a distinction, not every critical thought is skeptical doubt. We really need to distinguish between doubt on the one hand and careful reflection or inquiry questioning on the other hand. In the case of reflection and inquiry, the mind really engages with a topic and it can come to some conclusion, even if the conclusion might be that the situation is not clear, but it is somehow fruitful. Skeptical doubt, however, doesn't lead anywhere. It just goes on and on and on. Someone once compared doubt to the situation of a person standing at the crossroads, Kreuzung, and not being able to decide in which direction to go. So that's the situation of doubt. We cannot act. This is the effect. It paralyzes us and it prevents us from engaging in anything. Because we will find objections to everything. <laughs> If we are under the influence of doubt, we will be unable to commit ourselves to anything. It could be with, rela with regard to relationships, with regard to a job, but also with regard to our Dharma practice. In our practice, we can experience doubt with respect to the teachings, you know, the Dharma or doubts regarding the way of practicing or regarding the teachers, or we can have doubts about our own capacity to really walk this path and to realize liberation. And in my experience, skeptical doubt really thrives in those moments when there are already other defilements in the mind. For instance, if we feel disappointed because you know, maybe we haven't had the progress that we hoped for, then it can easily happen that we start to question everything that we are doing and we doubt whether this practice can actually work. Or if we experience a so-called multiple hindrance attack, as Joseph calls them, <laughs> some combination of hindrances at the same time, then the mind easily can conclude, okay, um, I'm just not able, I'm, I'm incapable of this practice. No matter what the specific doubt is, we can recognize it by this effect it has because it really weakens and undermines our practice. Skeptical doubt erodes the trust and the energy that we need for our practice. Sometimes it can even be the voice that tells us just, you know, to give it up and to plunk the whole project. So we really have to be alert and to notice when this voice arises in our mind. Sometimes it is also a little bit disguised, you know, it appears as a very clever and smart inner voice. Then, yeah, we have covered all the five hindrances. And just to mention them again, sensual desire, aversion or ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. And just knowing them can really help us to recognize them. 
And maybe you have noticed that you are more familiar with some of those hindrances than with others, which is natural because some people just tend to experience some of them more often than other people or there are times where we might experience one of the hindrances more prominently and other times where it doesn't arise very much. Anyway, the important thing is just that we do recognize them. This is really of foremost importance to know when they are present and not to feel bad or ashamed when we do notice them. Just appreciating that we have actually noticed what is happening, that's important. Otherwise, we just get lost in another loop of reactivity towards the hindrances, and that's not really helpful. In the moment where we become aware of a hindrance, we can choose to bring mindfulness to it. So we could really recognize, oh right, this is desire. Let me explore it. Let me feel it and examine it closely just to watch it, to see how it unfolds, how it changes, how it maybe disappears from a place of kindness and balance. And over the time we will learn so much about how these hindrances manifest in our body and in our mind. We become really familiar with the felt sense of whatever, aversion or sloth or torpor. And we start to notice them at much more subtle levels. What we also start to notice, and that's a bit a different level, what we can start to notice is the dependent arising of any hindrance. Because hindrances do not just appear out of nowhere. They appear when the causes and conditions are right for them. And through observation, we just start to notice these processes. We see what leads to what. For instance, it's easy to notice that eating too much food can increase the likelihood of sloth and torpor. Very simple cause and effect relation. Not very surprising. Or we might notice how physical pain can trigger all of the hindrances, actually. Aversion against the pain, wanting, desiring something else, doubt, etc. Or we can start to notice how our expectations influence our mind and our practice and can bring up uh, hindrances. So if we understand that such states, such hindrances arise on the basis of certain causes and conditions, this also can help us not to take them so personally. Because truly they are impersonal. They are insubstantial energies appearing and disappearing in our mind. They are just, as the Buddha said, incoming defilements. They are neither constant, nor are they who we are in any deeper sense. They are more like passing clouds that can never affect or stain the spaciousness of the sky. And then we might also notice moments where the hindrances are absent, where there is maybe a sense of spaciousness, of ease, Notice them, be aware of those moments where the mind is relatively free from those hindrances. And just notice 
experience this state. Maybe right now, just check how is my mind, what is the mind state right now, what hindrances are around, maybe n none of them. So we can really learn to refine our perception and noticing more and more subtle levels of the hindrances. And as we are cultivating mindfulness and wisdom and many other wholesome qualities, the hindrances will naturally decrease and get weaker. Not within one day, of course, or not even maybe in seven days, but over time, the wild elephant of our mind is really being tamed. And then our mind can become our best friend, a source of inner strength and of kindness, of balance and of happiness. And if we continue on this path, ultimately the door is open to the complete dissolution of all the clouds obscuring the sky. So I would like to end with another quote from the Buddha or from the suttas. All the disciples of the Buddha have gained the path for crossing over the stream of samsara because their mind is clear and pure, just as the water purifying gem purifies the turbid water. If people can remove all the mental evil and be faithful, clear, calm in the mind, it is just like the brilliant moon. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.